It's Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 585, where I welcome Dr. Sherry Walling, my wife, back on the show. We talk about a few things. We talk about moving outside your comfort zone. We talk about the power of relationships with some very specific examples of how having strong relationships, having a solid network helped Sherry with some recent things that she's working on. We also talk about her book that is coming out in June or July of this year, a book about grief. And we talk about her interest in psychedelic-assisted therapy. I always enjoy the episodes when she comes on the show because, surprise, surprise, we have rapport. We've been <laughs> we've known each other for 26 years, been married for 21, and I, uh, I think this conversation turned out pretty good. The MicroConf State of Independent SAS Report is in the works. And just a few weeks from now, I'd say three to four weeks from now, we'll be releasing that report as well as doing a live stream of some key findings. Producer Xander did a bang up job this year on mixing things up. I believe 20 to 25% of the questions were different. And so we have sentiment about how people felt about the last year, what hiring is like, asked about no code, asked about just a bunch of topics to to go beyond just the numbers and the nuts and bolts. So I'll make sure to mention that once we have the date set. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Dr. Sherry Walling. You know how I don't drink coffee anymore? Oh God, really? <laughs> Are you buzzy? I drank a latte and I added a shot. I had a three shot latte today. Why did you do that? This feels so amazing. I feel so alive. Yeah. This afternoon's going to be a little rough. Says every addict ever. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and now, since I don't drink coffee anymore, I've talked about it on the on the show before, but it like makes me anxious. I'll, like I feel my heart pounding. You know, I just ha- it really impacts me. I thought that was just you hanging out with me. Boom, boom, boom. Rim Ooh. shot. But anyways, yeah. So I. S- Stopped, but now, so I drink tea in the mornings, as people know. But what I found is that every once in a while, when I have a latte now, it's great. I'm so focused and productive. Caffeine, highly recommended. Are you going to have a really focused and productive day today? At least for the next hour or two until I crash so hard I fall asleep. Uh, So thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Dr. Walling. Back again. You had to book me quite a lot of it in advance, didn't you? I, I really do. My people had to call your people. Yes, they did. And I'm glad we were able to make it work. I have so many questions for you. You're doing so many things right now. And I don't mean literally right now, but you are working on a book. In fact, the book is done. Here's the thing. You wrote a book like two years ago and I read it and it's amazing. It's a book about grief and it's called Touching Two Worlds. Is that the, the title has changed. Sort of. That is the title we're going with. Yep. Awesome. And instead of self-publishing, which you had done for the Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your shit Together, you decided to go through a publisher. And I'd love to just kick us off. I have like four topics to cover today. All things that you're doing that I think are interesting and, and related to, you know, at least tangentially related to folks who listen to this show. But I want to find out why not self-publish this book? Yeah, I mean... I was lucky to have the choice, right? I worked really hard to write a proposal and to work my network and work connections to to try to do the traditional publishing route. So I just want to 
of course, honor that I had the choice, which not everybody does. The reason for me that I decided to try to work with a traditional publisher on this particular project is because it is, it's an expansion of the audience that I normally speak to. So while I have lots of wonderful connections in the community that, that we share in working with entrepreneurs, this book is really written for a much broader audience, a more general audience, and it's an audience that you know, I haven't cultivated per se. So I was hoping that working with a traditional publisher would help me to think about how to better launch a book into a general audience. I also did get an advance, which isn't a game changer in our world in the sense that we can put some funds and resources towards the cost of publishing a book. But I think the advance does help feel like there's resources behind launching the book. There's resources, like the book is sort of paying for itself. The book is funding itself in some ways, which I think is really helpful. Right. And you said that, you know, the advance doesn't make a difference to us, but even, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, it's a substantial amount of money. Like it's, it's not nothing that they're investing in it, which is really cool. Yeah. Specifically, I am working with a publisher called Sounds True, which is a really cool publisher for me to work with. They are kind of like the publisher that does really scientifically informed wellness and personal development. So they've published authors like Brene Brown, Wim Hof, like people who, you know, many of your listeners will recognize. And to be in that community of authors feels like a really big deal. And I'm hoping, I'm not sure if it's going to pan out, but I'm hoping that being published by this particular publisher will help me to get in the room and get some connections with, you know, people who I think could really be advocates for this book. Yeah, there is an aspect of being part of a club, right? Of of being able to reach out to someone like Brene Brown or Wim Hof and say, "Hey, we we've been published by the same public." Like that instantly separates you from someone like me. If I reached out, where it's just like cold email, rando guy on the internet, I can see there being a lot of value with that. To get the book deal, though, you had to go outside your comfort zone. I remember you emailing, contacting. 30 agents, right? You kind of need an agent to get a pub. I mean, I don't know how it all goes, but like you were emailing cold email and trying to get intros and just working it. And I remember that feeling frustrating slash you felt like it was a bit of a waste of time because it wasn't yielding for like months. Oh, sure. Someone told me prepare for a hundred rejections and that's just to get an agent. That's not to get a book deal. And ultimately none of that cold emailing mattered at all. The agent that I eventually got connected to was a, a connection of a connection of a connection. So there was a direct trail of someone that I knew and had spent time with to someone who read the book, loved the book, and passed it on to their agent. And so ultimately, of course, it was the network and it was the connections that helped get the deal. And the person whom you met who made the intro, you met at an in-person event, right? Yep. It was it was Tucker Max, who you're audience may be somewhat familiar with. But yeah, we met at an in-person event. He runs a company called Scribe Media, which helps people write books. I went to a workshop that they were doing about writing memoirs. It, it just sort of the dominoes fell that way. You know, I often say doing things in public creates opportunity. And by that, I both mean shipping things like writing, podcasts, videos, social media, whatever, just being out there, shipping apps, shipping products, but also going to an event for someone like me, I actually, <laughs> I usually don't enjoy, for a guy who runs a lot of events, I enjoy my events, but I don't enjoy a lot of other events, to be honest. Like, Do you go to any events that aren't your events? Well, certainly not since COVID. I can't remember the last event I went to that wasn't one of my events. 
But which, you know, part of COVID and just part of the last couple of years of me realizing where I'm at and where I want to go, I actually think that once things settle down a bit, I do think I will go to some other events that I have not attended before. It's outside my comfort zone. And I bring that up because you've gone to a bunch of events and I'm sure some of those were outside your comfort zone, but dominoes fall and eventually you get a book deal almost exclusively because you did that. You took yourself outside your comfort zone. Yeah. Another thing you've been doing outside your comfort zone recently is asking people for essentially, I, I call them testimonials. I don't remember if you were calling them, you know, it's like recommendations or just someone's name below a quote about your book, right? Yep. And that's been a lot of, I think, cold and warm email as well. And you're, I mean, you're hammering away at it. You're doing a good job, but I can tell that you don't love it. Yeah. So I'm getting ready to put together the landing page for the book. And then we are also finalizing the print version of the book. So any testimonials that will go like on the back cover or those, the book jacket, they have to be in basically this week, even though the book's not coming out until this summer. But uh, those things have to be in and uh, will be on the website. So yes, once again, I've been cold emailing lots of people who would be great to have their name on the book. And this worked really well for me before. I actually reached out to Seth Godin. It wasn't a cold email because he and I had spoken at the same event. So I had handshake met him. You know, we weren't like buds, but like I had at least this point of like, hey, remember business of software. So he did an endorsement for my first book, which appears on the back cover. And that was a really big deal. So I'm doing it again. And I reached back out to Seth Godin and he was like, no, I'm not really doing a lot of blurbs. And I was like, sad. So a lot of the people that I reached out to either did not respond or some of them responded with very kind no's like Seth. And once again, I'm working the network. It's people that I know or have met or have been in the room with in some capacity who have responded. And it's been so interesting because a lot of very busy people will say, you know, I'll glance through the book. Why don't you write me a few sample endorsements and I'll, I'll tailor it to make it my own or I'll sign off on it. And I actually really value that, right? Someone is lending you their credibility. So whether or not they have read the whole book or whether or not they have written all of the words of the endorsement themselves, they're still lending you their credibility. And I hold that very like in high regard that that matters to me. I don't want to diminish that. But then there are some people who have read the book, like my mentors, people who I've worked with, people who are my professional contacts, and they've read the book and they've written long emails that have been so, so meaningful to me in terms of giving me a lot of personal feedback about what the book has meant to them and then writing these wonderful statements of support for the book. So even though it's this long, arduous process and a lot of the email and a lot of the work that I've done has yielded nothing, the people who have responded, oh, it's been really, really meaningful and encouraging. And so it makes me really excited to launch the book out into the world because I already have a little circle of fans who are people who are really important to me. Yeah, and that's, it's so interesting. I mean, there's two points on that. One is it's hard work and you don't particularly love, like you are very gifted in a room and you're very gifted speaking on the mic in front of a camera, but sending cold email, I would say is perhaps not high on the list of things that you, that are, that email you are Email in at. general. Exactly. <laughs> not my strength. So, but, but you're grinding it out. You're doing what needs to get done to do it. I think the second point is, I know that there's someone listening to this thinking, well, it's easy for Sherry because you know she knows everybody and she has this tremendous network. 
or it's easy for Rob to do what, you know, similarly when I talk on this podcast, do you remember like 10 years ago when we knew no one and no one knew us in the entrepreneurial space? I still feel like that. I almost didn't get a book deal because my social media following is so is so small. They were like, you have like two or 3,000 Twitter followers. Like we don't even, we don't talk to people like you. I mean, they didn't give a crap about my PhD, but they were really, they're really worried that I don't have enough followers, that I don't know enough people. So I guess the knowing people is also very relative because there's always someone with more celebrity and more connections. So there, it is the like, you got to start somewhere, right? You have to start somewhere. And you're talking about audience. I was talking about network. Yeah. Like the two are different, right? It's like, who knows you is your audience and who you know is your network. That's how I think about it. And I think that you have a pretty strong network. You have an audience, but it's, we're all still building it, but you're right. Your audience is not as big as, as some others. But I just want someone listening to this to say like, this didn't happen magically nor overnight. And it's been a decade. I mean, I started blogging in 2005. That's 17 years ago. I started podcasting 11 or 12 years ago. You started podcasting 10 years ago, you know, and we started speaking and it's like, how many conferences did I pitch? And crickets, no one would take my calls, so to speak. And, and, you know, this podcast had 100, 200 subscribers after 12 months of doing it weekly. It was incredible, right? It's like tens of thousands now, but it's like you you work up to these things. And so you getting a book deal and you being able to get these testimonials, it doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't doesn't happen by accident. Hard work, luck, and skill, right? And risk. So my network has come from me speaking, period. It's speakers, it's the other speakers. That's how I got access to Seth Godin. That's how I, you know, had an afternoon chat with Sam Parr. Like anybody that I know is almost always because I pitched a conference and got up there and did it. And I, I'm i not the most gifted speaker. Like, it's not easy for me. It's still hard and stressful. But that's that's been the investment that is now yielding any network connections that I have are through that. So I have a couple other topics I want to chat through. I hope we have time for all of them. But the last one that we'll get to is I want to just talk about, I mean, you talk to so many founders and you put out so much content about founder. It's founder mental health, but it's just like being a high functioning individual. And I want to find out some common things that, you know, solo founders struggle with and small teams and et cetera. But before we do that, you put out a tweet two days ago, a couple days ago, as of this recording, you said 100 hours of training crammed into an already full life. I'm glad for the chance to learn and cultivate a thoughtful, informed voice about psychedelic treatments. Thanks to the team at Mind Cure Health for allowing me to partner with them and also MAPS for a great training program. And MAPS is MDMA therapy training program. You have a certificate of completion. And you've also, if folks have been following your social media or your, you know, your podcast, Zen Founder, you've been talking about psychedelic assisted therapy for, I don't know, six months, nine months now. A couple of years, actually. Yeah, I just don't know when you start talking about it in public. You and I certainly have talked about it for several years. I'll admit, like, let's say five years ago, I heard Tim Ferriss talking about this on his podcast. And so much of the stuff he talks about, to me, is just it's just eye roll. It's like, oh, here he goes off on this thing that's like nobody else cares about or he's trying to do it for attention or whatever it is. And then I heard Joe Rogan talk about it. And that's instantly like, Joe Rogan's entertaining, but I'm, let's just say I'm not a big supporter, you know, or fan of a lot of stuff he talks about just feels way fringe or just out there in a way that I'm like, yeah, whatever. But when you started talking about it, you were like, yeah, this is a thing. <laughs> you started rolling your eyes, didn't you? Like, oh, here she goes. There's a book by Michael Pollan. Is that his name? Michael Pollan. And the book's called How to Change Your Mind. He had written 
the the really good books about diet dietary. The omnivore's dilemma. There you go, omnivore's dilemma. And so you had me read. This is three or four years ago. You had me read um, how to change your mind, and it was like, oh, okay, this isn't something people are making up. Like there are clinical trials, and like the FDA's involved, and there are dozens of like tier one universities that are using psychedelics in therapy. And so about 70, Yale, Harvard, UC San Francisco, UC Berkeley. So this is not a, it's not a joke and it's not, it feels more like a coming wave of, of something that's really helping people. So I guess there's, there's a couple questions, you know, like any innovation, it's like, People roll their eyes at, at Web3, right? Which is like crypto and NFTs and like, oh, this is bother. People roll their eyes at the dot-com boom. People roll their eyes at, you know, I don't know, whatever other innovations. I mean, I think there's certainly, when you mention psychedelics, like, you know, your mom might be like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? That's, you mean drugs? You know, but whereas you're- My mom is very worried know, that I'm a drug addict, by the way. <laughs> so I guess like what, what should people know? You know, like what, what is happening in a, in a nutshell and like, who will this ultimately help? Like what's the benefit beyond traditional therapy and and what, I don't know, timelines, just like kind of give us a five minute primer on what's happening. Yeah, so we will see in the next five years that psychedelic assisted psychotherapy will become much, much more common than it is now. And that it will be used to treat a variety of concerns. The the common ones like anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. There's also some really promising research related to eating disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder. What we're learning is that, so psychedelics, of course, are a class of medication. Psilocybin is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, LSD. There's a lot of work happening with MDMA, uh, which is also the, the street drug ecstasy. MDMA is not a classical psychedelic, but it's sort of grouped into this whole movement. What's happening is that people are pairing psychedelic experiences, which is usually sort of a, a full day under a medicine. They are combining that with psychotherapy, usually 12 to 15 sessions of psychotherapy and maybe three sessions of medicine and have developed some treatment protocols that the FDA is currently reviewing. And they're in the last phase of that review. So the phase three or stage three, which is the final phase. So very likely we will see the FDA approve MDMA for use as a treatment for PTSD, psilocybin for use as a treatment for depression, probably be approved in 2023. I think these are super interesting interventions. It's the only protocol that involves both therapy and medication that the FDA is like approving as a package deal. We've long known that the best way to treat mental health concerns is a combination of like a biological or biochemical intervention and therapy, but they've never been approved in a package before. So I think just as an innovation, that's probably really important. There also is some really interesting, promising research that looks at the ways that these medicines impact the brain different than our traditional psychiatric medicines like SSRIs, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, um, and other medicines that are sort of commonly prescribed for mental health. Psychedelics work a little bit differently. Well, they work a lot differently. They work probably more comprehensively. They work in different parts of the brain all at once. One other sort of quick thing that I think is really interesting, the New England Journal of Medicine just published an article looking at a comparison between psilocybin, so mushrooms, and SSRIs like your Prozac, and found that 
psilocybin was as effective at, alle at alleviating depression as SSRIs were. But one of the significant differences that I think is really important is that SSRIs tend to numb emotion on both ends of the spectrum or diminish emotion. Numb probably isn't the best word. So for example, it makes your depression less, which is wonderful for folks who are really experiencing depression, but it can also kind of make your joy less. It can turn down your capacity for positive affect. Psilocybin doesn't seem to do that. The research is still pretty new, but the New England Journal of Medicine found that it was a strong enough study to go ahead and publish it. So they only saw that diminished emotional capacity in the negative end of the spectrum, in the depression side. So people could still retain their level of joy and enthusiasm, even when using this kind of biomedical intervention for depression. So I could obviously lecture about this a lot. I've been thinking about it a lot. I think the science is really interesting. Actually, last year I worked with a company called MindCure to do a podcast all about psychedelics called Mind Curious, which folks are welcome to check out. But I think this is something that you just want to have your eye on. You want to be aware of as folks who are informed consumers of mental health care. I think these medicines have tremendous promise, but like all new interventions, there's going to be some bumps in the ways that they're rolled out. There'll probably be some sort of folks hanging shingles who aren't necessarily that qualified, who don't totally understand the science. So I'm really wanting to position myself as somebody who can speak the science, but also talk about the practical applications of these interventions and help people really be informed about what's coming and what might be accessible to them. That's the voice that I think a lot of folks need to hear. I'm guessing many people may be hearing this for the first time that this is a legitimate thing on, you know, on this, on this podcast. So that's why I wanted to talk even briefly with you about it is that this is happening. It's in fact, psilocybin mushrooms are already legal in the state of Oregon for this treatment, right? They get legalized in the past six or eight months. So th this is happening. And to your point, there will be misinformation may be strong, but like there will be people who say they know what they're talking about, but they don't. There's certainly, you know, an underground version of this that's not FDA approved that that's happening per, you know, you hear Tim, Fer again, Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan talking about doing it mushrooms a few times a year, you know, is something they do. But I, I, to hear that how legitimate this is becoming and how effective it is without so many of the downsides of like SSRIs have a lot of side effects is my understanding. You take them for a long time versus these are kind of, like you said, more focused treatments that they kind of re-cut the trenches in your brain, right? They reroute thing. And recut is a weird way to say it, but they- We talk about um, resetting the default mode network is the language that yeah. would be used. Yeah. So it's just a good thing to be aware of, right? There's a difference between recreational use. There's a difference between spiritual use and then- you know, my sort of area that I'm most curious about is the clinical application, so the treatment uses of these medicines. So we published The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together like three years ago. And to date, I still see that book getting recommended a lot. I see people talking about it on Twitter. I mean, it, it really has had an impact on a lot of people because it covers all these aspects of a founder's journey. And I'm curious... Since then, if you have, like, if you could add a couple chapters to that book, is there anything that you feel like you've, you know, you've learned or you've come across or you've experienced in the past couple years that you would be like, you know what, that would make a, a cool addition to an updated version of that book? You know, to 
return to really where we began the conversation today, I think one of the things that I would want to emphasize more in the book is the power and importance of network. We talked a lot in that book about kind of the internal life of the entrepreneur. And we did talk some about relationships, but I think that network is of paramount importance in a way that I didn't even quite understand then. So network, friendships, we did talk about it, but I think the isolation that has come with the pandemic and the isolation that a lot of solo founders or small team founders already feel is really the sort of biggest mental health vulnerability of the day-to-day founder. And so the ability to have a really strong network, to be in a mastermind, to have deep connected relationships with people who understand the ins and outs of the business and your life, you know, I just can't emphasize it enough. It's like the song that I want to sing all the time, every day to everybody that I talk to. And I want to emphasize that you're using the word network, but I think it's the word relationships. Because when I hear that, let's say five years ago, when I heard network, I was like, oh boy, it's the person who walks in. Hey, I know that person and has this whole, I'm playing chess with people and I'm matching them up and I'm, I know all these, but you're not talking about that. You're talking about having relationships. Sure. There are professional relationships that help interview you to a book agent and then write a recommendation for your book. And those are great to have, but you're also talking about having friends and having both founder and non-founder friends, because the founder friends understand you, but you also don't want to talk about business all the time, right? It's like having those people to backstop you and to be like, hey, when we're trapped in the house for six months in a pandemic shutdown, who will do a Zoom happy hour with me that really brings me joy? Yeah, network maybe has a bad rap, but it's it's all the web of connections that support you. So some are much closer to you, right? The people you live with, the people you've known for a long time. Some are getting farther and farther out away from your day-to-day life, but they're still important connections. People that you can ask a favor for or offer a favor to. That it's those human relationships that it's hard to build them. Like let's not let's not oversell it. Like it requires a lot of work. It's a lot of awkwardness. Like I'm not great at developing relationships, certainly not over email, certainly not virtually. But the importance of figuring out those skills is as important as a lot of the hard skills that go into building the business and promoting the business. Yeah. And this is something that I learned that I've talked about before, but you recall in the 2000s when I was still working full-time jobs, I kept saying, I just don't, I don't like working with people. I don't, I don't want to work with anyone. I don't like coworkers. I thought you said that like last week, honey. No, that's not true. <laughs> Tracy Zander, a Alex, I like you guys. <laughs> and, and so I, that's when I was like, I'm going to be a solopreneur. I'm no employees and I'm just going to do my stuff. And what I realized is not that I didn't like coworkers. As I, it's that I didn't like coworkers who weren't very good, who I couldn't handpick, who, I couldn't, who didn't care about the job and who weren't really good at what they did. And so I did the solopreneur thing for a few years and then as Drip started taking off, it was like, I can't do this as a, a single founder with no employees or no support. And so started building a team around that and learned that lesson of like, oh, I actually really enjoy being on a team, but a team of high performing, you know, individuals. So I thought I could do it all on my own. And even build, you know, to come back to your your thoughts and idea of network, it's like, what would starting Tiny Seed have been like if I couldn't have just reached out and emailed? Heaton Shaw and Laura Roeder and Rand Fishkin and, you know, all the people that are mentors, like that instantly made Tiny Seed stand out. It wouldn't have happened. No. 
you're real smart and I like you, but like, I don't know how it in the world it would have happened because you didn't have that social credibility and you wouldn't have had access to the people who knew you and believed in you. And that comes from, like I said earlier, it doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen by accident. It comes from doing things in public. <laughs> doing things in public creates opportunity. It builds relationships and, you know, puts you on people's radar and, and puts you in people's minds as someone who does interesting things. And therefore, I don't know, it's like we want to be around, want to be around those folks. And I think to, to kind of bring it back to your earlier comment, it's not just about business network and being able to reach out and get a testimonial or have someone be a mentor. It's also about some deep relationships, right? And having someone to rely on and to kind of help support you. Yeah. I think it's about realizing that you're on the journey with other people. You're not exactly on the same path, but you can sort of see where they are and they can see where you are and you're watching their progress and like legitimately celebrating it, like caring about how they're growing and developing in their personal and professional lives and then watching them or letting them care about you, letting them know like, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's where my successes are. Here's this book that I wrote about my family and our losses and you're invited into my life and into my world and I'll show up for you as well. And that happens, of course, on all these different levels of intimacy, but it happens because you give it attention. Well, with that, I think we should wrap up. Folks want to keep up with you. I know it's just, if we were, this is good stuff, but I literally hear the dog barking because I think the cleaners are arriving right now. It's about to get really loud in the house and we're at a nice transition point. If folks want to keep up with you on Twitter, you are at Zen Founder. You, of course, host the weekly Zen Founder podcast. And your book comes out in June or July. So if someone want, is interested in, in reading this book, which is, it started as a memoir. You wrote the whole thing as a memoir. And then the publisher said, put in more, I don't know what actionable kind of... Be helpful. Be helpful to people. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, and for what it's worth, I think it, you know, it, improved, it improved the book. Yeah, totally. So if folks are interested in that, they should go to zenfounder.com, sign up for your email list, and you'll reach out when the book is in pre-order. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you. Thanks again to Sherry for coming on the show. And thank you for coming back every week and listening and subscribing. If you haven't given a five-star review in whatever podcatcher you use, I would appreciate it. And if we're not connected on Twitter, hit me up at Rob Walling. That's it for this week. I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. <laughs>